Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Project Zion Podcast. This is Brittany Mangleson. I'm going to be your host for today. And today we are having another episode in our Chai Can't Even series where we talk to millennials in Community of Christ. So these are folks who uh, grew up in the church, who have had a long history with Community of Christ. And we're going to talk about uh, their, we talk about their stories of faith and hopes and challenges relating to church. So today we're going to be talking with Alicia Bowen, and we actually, I had a conversation with her husband, Ken, not too long ago. So this is, um, Ken's story was his conversion to Community of Christ, and now we're going to be talking to Alicia, who's a lifelong member of Community of Christ. Um, And so if you haven't listened to Ken's story, uh, be sure to go back and check that out as well. So Alicia, I'm really excited to chat with you today. Um, Why don't you just let us know a little bit about yourself? Hi, Brittany. It's so good to be here. It's weird to be on this end of things now. Um, my name is Alicia Bowen. I, as Brittany said, I'm a lifelong member of Community of Christ. I attend the Huxford Congregation in South Alabama, and I am a new elder in the church. Uh, that's very new. We were just ordained at the beginning of May. And it's been kind of a wild journey between being called and going through all of the classes and then jumping directly into our first summer of reunion and everything as ministers. Okay, so I knew that the ordination had happened recently, but I didn't realize it only had happened in May. Or maybe I did, but I forgot that detail. And that that's a lot to get ordained right before summer, (laughs) right before reunion. (laughs) Uh, especially, I mean, and, you know, we're in kind of this new world in a quote unquote post COVID world. So figuring out how to be the church and to do reunions, maybe for the first time in a couple of years. And that's just, that's exciting. I'm sure you've had a great summer. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. Um, Ken was called directly into things. I think he had a, a service to participate in every day and I was called to help with music. Um, I did not play piano until two years ago when the pandemic started. And that was kind of my little pandemic project was to sit down and finally get to the point that I could play for congregational singing. Uh, so it was quite the experience to suddenly be in a room full of people <laughs> for the first time and and just have random songs called out that I needed to get up and play in front of everyone. So, <laughs> so <laughs> you all be ready. Well, <laughs> ready or not, here we go. <laughs> that is so exciting. Uh, yeah, you definitely have had an, an exciting summer. So. <laughs> I am really excited for this conversation, though. These are some of my favorite interviews just because I like hearing people's stories. And so uh, we are going to dive right on in. So I know that you grew up Community of Christ, um, and I'm wondering what that looked like for you. Did you attend camps? Um, I'm always really interested to know how folks, how adults in the church were mentored and treated as kids growing up in the church? Do you feel like you were mentored by adults? Did you feel like a burden? Just kind of talk about your childhood growing up in Community of Christ. So I'm actually a sixth generation member um, of the church. Uh, My mom is currently the pastor of our congregation. And so growing up, I kind of got to see 
her development as a leader in the church. Uh, I started off on the same trajectory that everyone else pretty much did growing up. I went to my first junior camp, um, had a blast. It was an amazing camp experience for me. Uh, Growing up in the 90s, I think we were all obsessed with camp culture because of all of the movies that involved camp, Um, you know, Parent Trap, uh, Heavyweights. I mean, just so many movies emphasize the joy of camp. And then I show up at Bluff Springs Campground, have the most amazing week um, with just wonderful ministry. I made a new little best friend and it was kind of my first best friend (laughs) in church because I grew up again in a very rural congregation, very small youth group made up entirely of my cousins and I was the only girl. Um, So for the very first time, I had a female friend (laughs) in church. And it was wonderful. We exchanged letters the entire next year leading into camp. And then she brought a friend to camp who was not a member of the church. And that dynamic just was very upsetting. And I ended up getting very homesick and going home early. (laughs) So I like to joke now that I was a junior camp dropout Um, and I didn't ever go back. And Now that I'm back in the church, I regret that and I totally recognize the importance of camp, but it was a little traumatic for me. Uh, My needs were not entirely seen to by the adults in the situation. Um, Looking now as an adult, I would definitely try to help a kid find new friends or, you know, just kind of set them up for success. Um, And that just didn't quite happen for me. And so I was really separate from the youth of my mission center for the rest of my childhood. And part of that, again, was we were an hour from the nearest city. Um, So while there would sometimes be some occasional interaction, my experience of the church growing up was very congregationally related. Um, It didn't have that broader implication of being part of the group. I know I was listening to Molly Bagley's um, podcast a while back and she grew up in the same area I did. She's just a few years older than me. And so she talks about having friends from Louisiana to Panama City. And while I've now developed that, that just wasn't my experience. I was very much just in Huxford and not really involved in what I think now is probably one of the best parts of our church. So I'm glad that you um, shared that because I think it's really important as adults now, I just assume that the kids in our mission center in the larger area are going to keep in contact or always get along. And, you know, like I don't necessarily have to help maybe nurture these relationships. Like sometimes that can be our perception, right? But the reality is, is that kids need help and mentoring to know how to have long distance friendships. And it's difficult because if something seemingly small to an adult can happen, if if the kids have that separation, um, it's a lot more difficult to work through those issues and feelings can get hurt. And then it's like, okay, well then I'm just not going to show up. And I think it's really important to be mindful as adults that we have to help act like we have to actively help nurture and provide opportunity for dialogue between kids and different congregations and just really, really support those relationships. So thank you so much for sharing that. So what did your involvement as far as like, so, so you said, you know, it was very congregational. So what kinds of, how was your congregation growing up? 
I grew up in a very small congregation, um, probably lived through <laughs> what I've heard some people call the great die off. Um, as a child, we probably were approaching 30 members on an average Sunday, uh, which in our area is a pretty good sized congregation today. Um, but at the time would have been seen as small, but just over the generations, the older folks died off and the younger folks went away to college and then never returned to the area. So I'm one of those very rare situations that I did have an opportunity to come back because of my career. Um, but that is not the typical story of our area in general outside of the church, much less within the church that was already pulling from a smaller pool. Um, I was very involved growing up. Uh, my mom played piano every Sunday. And so as I started band, I was encouraged to play my flute for little uh, worship music times. I sang all the time, or at least I made a joyful noise, but I'm sure everyone thought it was just absolutely precious. Very early on, as soon as I was learning how to read, I was encouraged to be in the pulpit reading scripture which kind of brings me to, I've never known any different than women participating in church. I was born in 88. So by the time I had any memory, there were already women <laughs> um, in ministry in our church. And so there was never any second guessing that that was something that I could do and that I could participate in. Um, I was proud to participate and to share with my congregation. And I can still remember how proud my grandmother was the first time that I successfully read like an entire scripture without having to have any help on pronunciation or anything. Um, and so that's something that we took for granted, but I realize now how special it was that as a child, I was participating in ministry, especially as a female child. I love that. And I love, I, I just always love hearing folks who are my age talk about how it was just normal and something that they didn't even, you know, they, they knew no different. Uh, and then just seeing how that empowers not only young girls, but also young boys. I mean, I've talked to plenty of males in the, in the church that are millennials to just have this understanding that women and men are equal and it has nothing to do with gender and anyone can show up and provide ministry that is meaningful and valid. So thank you. Thank you for sharing. So one thing I did want to ask is just a little bit about your perspective on growing up in the RLDS church, now Community of Christ, but when you were younger, the RLDS church and being in Alabama. I mean, there's um, a lot of strong religious culture down there. And I know that, um, you know, the RLDS church often got mistaken for Mormons or, you know, there's just, there's a, there's a lot there. Um, and so how was that experience for you? Were you constantly having to explain who you were or to justify yourself as a Christian or what was just the general perception of who you were, uh, with your peers? Definitely all of that. Uh, you know, as a very young child, I remember attending um, vacation Bible school at other churches and definitely experiencing some early confusion as to why the women weren't more participatory and kind of asking <laughs> naively, um, so is your mom a pastor or you know, things like that? Uh, but then as I got older, 
coming to this realization that I had to defend that I was a Christian and would get constant questions about, oh, you're one of those Mormons. And I'm like, well, actually, we're the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we're Emma's church because my grandmother, uh, bless her heart, like she raised me to believe that we were founded by Emma Smith. And um, she definitely instilled in me the importance of kind of this matrilineal line, not only in our own family, but within the church too. And so there was a lot of confusion for me. I definitely remember in about sixth grade kind of encountering our church history for the first time in a classroom. And I vividly remember reading this little social studies book and it mentions uh, Mormonism and the whole thing. And it didn't quite align with what I had been taught um, in our own congregation. And so I had a little talk with my teacher afterwards and just kind of told her a little bit about what I had been taught. And she was very generous to me, um, understanding that I was from this tradition and may not have the whole story yet. (laughs) And so she didn't really challenge that. And I'm very grateful for that in retrospect, um, because I was in sixth grade. I was not ready uh, for those kinds of conversations yet. I think a lot of the differences came to a head in high school. I I was part of kind of, and this is a very South Alabama thing. A lot of places have like the fellowship of Christian athletes, but we wanted to be inclusive and have the fellowship of Christian students um, because it shouldn't just be the athletes. It should be everyone. And this was the whole era of purity culture and banning all of the books and all of that. And so I was a member and the first time I think I was made to not feel a part of things was in that organization. The leader of the organization, who funnily enough was a woman, um, she was a member of an Assembly of God church, but she knew enough about my church to believe that we were too other for me to even pray um, aloud as part of the group. So everyone else was allowed to lead prayer at some point. I never was allowed to lead prayer. I was welcome to attend and she would always encourage me to come to her church. Uh, But that was kind of the first open discrimination that I experienced, um, which I think has always then given me a lot more sympathy for groups that experience true discrimination. Wow. That's so interesting. Like, like horrifying, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So what, what a way to be challenged as a youth when you're trying to fit in, you're trying to find your own identity, you're trying to discover who you are and how you're going to present to the world. And then to have an adult and your peers, you know, isolate you like that. Um, that's, that is challenging. I'm I'm really sorry that that happened. Um, kind of this in-group out-group, like, Hmm. Not not a fan of that. I'm sorry. But, you know, it was a building experience for me, and it actually allowed me to then offer some grace to a classmate who uh, was a member of the LDS church. She was the only one at our school in the way that I was the only member of by then Community of Christ. And she and I really bonded over that. Um, we found out that we shared some favorite songs. Redeemer of Israel, you know, <laughs> was, was a common point. And we had a lot of good conversations because of the way that we were both treated. So I think she now lives in Utah and um, is living that whole life. But we 
we really bonded because of those experiences. And again, it did teach me to be a lot more sympathetic to other people because of the way that I was treated. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense that you'd be able to find that peer and have that common ground. Um, But then, like you said, it also built empathy and um, an understanding that just because somebody is different does not mean that we need to focus on those differences and isolate them and make them feel othered um, just because of, of that. So thank you. Thank you for sharing. So as you, so we're at high school now, so the next step is college. So as you uh, became a young adult and uh, entered into college, I'm curious how your involvement in the church looked like. Um, We either have, you know, you went to Graceland or you didn't. So (laughs) So I'm curious uh, to know what that looked like for you. Well, I didn't. (laughs) I did not attend Graceland. I went to the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. There was not a congregation in that town. There was one in Birmingham, but I was not the best driver at that point. And so my family did not encourage me to drive the hour (laughs) from Tuscaloosa to Birmingham through some of the worst traffic in the state um, just to attend church. And so I was still involved in the church on weekends when I would come home or over holidays and during the summer for sure, but did start to kind of go on my path of (laughs) self-discovery during that time. I attended a few services at different denominations for the first time. And that was good for me. I was a history major. And so I was kind of starting to develop an interest in religious history and wanted to learn more about different groups. I had a friend who ended up um, being baptized into the Episcopal church. Um, So I attended several services with her and was developing a strong interest in that church. I felt They had a lot of theological similarities to us, um, were more progressive in the way that, especially at that time, our church was kind of starting to announce itself (laughs) as becoming more progressive through the middle of the 2000s. And so I felt a kinship there. But then at the same time, my mom was actively taking priesthood classes and getting ready for her ordination. (laughs) And so I never quite pulled the trigger at the time because I didn't want her to be on that very important path and then her daughter to leave the church at the same time. Um, I didn't feel the calling to another denomination strongly enough (laughs) to kind of cross that line. So I officially stayed a member, but my membership was very loose during college and graduate school because I even ended up way off in Tennessee for that. Um, And so it it was a bit of a wandering time for me. Um, I kept my basic faith and, of course, my official membership, but didn't feel necessarily active in church at that time. That's fair. And honestly, uh, relatable to a lot of the stories that I've um, heard from millennials and community of Christ. And it's, it's difficult when you don't, well, I've heard that it's difficult when you don't go to Graceland and there's not those, you know, like the campus ministries and there's that, um, really easy ability to be plugged in to other young adults in the church. And so either not having a congregation near you or maybe having one, 
Um, I've, you know, talked to other people who maybe they had a congregation really close, but it wasn't a good fit or there weren't any other young adults, et cetera. So, um, I think your story is definitely relatable to a lot of young adults in the church. Um, and it's interesting too, that, you know, you, you made sure to say like, you kept, you maintained your faith, right? It wasn't that you were necessarily deeply questioning your beliefs or God or anything like that, but it was just the uh, mechanics of church and the community and and that kind of thing that just kind of um, stopped being such a priority. So thank you for sharing that. So after grad school, I kind of took a 180 and I, to back it up, I had first graduated college in the middle of the recession. Uh, back around 2010, I did grad school 2.0, got my master's in religious history, um, studied a little Mormon history in there just to kind of figure out more of where we came from, (laughs) because that interest was always there. Having not been taught it actively in church and wanting to know more about our true history, I kind of went down that path um, to get that master's degree. And then I was ready to go become a professional librarian, um, which I am today. I'm a library director, but there was an opportunity to go and be the library director at Graceland. And I took it and I moved to Lamoni as a 24 year old uh, who had, again, been away from the church for a certain amount of time, uh, did not grow up in necessarily the youth culture, um, got tons of material about Graceland, but had never felt connected to Graceland. Uh, But I went and had my year at Graceland. (laughs) I um, really enjoyed the culture there. It was the first time that I was part of a large congregation. I attended the Lamoni congregation, had a lot of nurturing experiences there with the priesthood members, Um, really enjoyed connecting in with some of the youth on campus and learning more about just the broad diversity of our church. Um, you know, the news about the Hawaiian congregations <laughs> was amazing. Um, made some really great friends there that I still remain in contact with today. And ultimately, that was the year my grandmother passed away. And my mom really struggled with that. And so when the opportunity came to move back to Alabama, I took it. Um, I had hoped to be at Graceland a little longer, but sometimes. God calls us where we need to be. And I really needed to be with my mom at that time. So I moved back to Alabama and took a job as a community college library director. Uh, We joke that not only did she pray me back uh, within driving distance, she prayed me back directly to her house. (laughs) Um, Being in rural Alabama, you never expect that you're going to get a professional academic job in rural Alabama. Uh, but I did. And my job was 40 minutes uh, from the house that I grew up in. So that was definitely a shocking change for me too, because when you have your aspirations of your career, you kind of think that you're going to end up in a city or, you know, but then to go to rural Iowa (laughs) to Graceland and then end up back in rural Alabama, it's like, okay, well, I I guess I'm just called to rural areas. Um, So suddenly here I was back in Alabama, back in my home congregation. And it looked very different than when I had left. Um, I'd been gone from 2006 until 2014. So 
a pretty good little gap of time in there. Um, several of our members had passed away during that time. Um, I returned having been part of a small youth group to no youth group at all and wasn't 100% committed to necessarily being part of the church at that time. Um, I was very focused on my career. Um, when I moved back here, I got involved in a lot of community organizations. I was signed up for Kiwanis immediately <laughs> um, and got just very involved on that side of things and had only been home about a year when I received uh, a calling. Um, I was called to priest and immediately felt the wrongness of it. Um, if people don't know, you're given a year to pray and discern over a calling once you receive one. And I did take some time, just thought, you know, maybe, maybe this is right. And maybe I just haven't felt it yet, but it turned out that it was not the calling for me at that time. Um, I was also trying to date <laughs> and being so isolated from the rest of the church one question that often gets asked on here is, were you ever pressured to date anybody in the church? Um, yeah, there that was not even an option for me. <laughs> there was no pressure there because there were no options where I was. And so I was trying to date online. I was trying to meet people. And I guess part of turning down that calling was knowing that if I found a fellow Christian in rural Alabama, that I would probably have to leave the church. And I wasn't ready to give up that hope, nor commit to something that I thought I might have to leave. And so I turned down that calling and I felt kind of guilty about it. And I probably stayed away from church gatherings for a while. <laughs> and I, I don't think anybody had hard feelings about it or anything like that, but I did. And so I kind of hid in my own congregation. I attended, I helped with worship services, I participated, but I didn't go beyond the congregation. I was kind of right back where I had been as a youth, just entirely in the congregation, not really participating in the wider denomination. Thank you so much for sharing that part of your story. I think it's really, really important. And as we talk about emerging leadership and the future of the church and how priesthood is structured and calling and expectations and all of the things, I think that it's so important to remember stories like yours and to really have an honest conversation with, I mean, I want to say ourselves, but like ourselves as a church of what this commitment looks like and who is actually able to say yes or an easy yes, right? There's there's some amount of, I don't know if privilege is the right word, but like kind of privilege of location, social location. I mean, for sure, things like sexual orientation, things like that, but just imagining your life and your future when you're a young adult and trying to figure out if ordained ministry could fit into all the other pieces that you're trying to build your life with. Right. And sometimes it, it's not easy to see. And it's, there are real concerns about, yeah, who you're going to marry, who's going to be able to date you. Um, if you become clergy in, you know, an ordained woman that does 
in in rural Alabama, that does make you ineligible to date certain people. So, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's a it's a real question that I can just like sense and feel that you had to really weigh with. So I, um, yeah, I, I don't blame you at all. I don't think you have anything to feel guilty about. I mean, that's a lot of life decisions. And again, culturally just kind of alienates you from a good portion of your local community. So that's, that's tough stuff to have to work through for sure. Yeah. Cause on one hand, you know, I would be talking to this one guy and then I would reveal that my mom was priesthood and that kind of made him back off a little bit because that was so foreign to him. And then on the other side, I would be talking to someone who maybe wasn't a person of faith or not committed to that. And then would, you know, maybe even mention that I had had a calling to priesthood and that's how serious I was about church. And then that was alienating to them. So even without accepting the call, I was kind of already (laughs) between a rock and a hard place. (laughs) Even just that it existed. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, and, and nobody was really able to have those conversations with me of, of what they would do because for women of an older generation, they were typically called after marriage or mm-hmm. later in their lives when they weren't necessarily looking toward dating. And then for men, I guess they don't experience the same pressure because if they accept a priesthood calling, well, then it's just accepted that they're going to stay in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But women were kind of in a little bit of a different situation there. Um, And had I been in a different area, perhaps I would have felt a little freer to take that call, but I knew that taking that call would then disqualify me (laughs) for probably ever getting married in this area. And, and I do think that God opened my eyes to seeing that uh, because I kind of, when I met Ken, he was then a pastor of a Nazarene congregation. Mm-hmm. And had I been a priesthood member in another church, I doubt that I would have pursued that uh, because I would not have felt that I could ask him to join us here at that time when he was actively engaged in ministry in another church and would have felt guilty about committing to ministering in our church to then leave it. So mm. I, I kind of felt, um, vindication is the wrong word, but I felt a little vindicated in my decision to turn down the calling when I met Ken and was like, okay, well, I guess I'm called to go be a pastor's wife in another denomination. Um, Yeah, this is so interesting. And I, I hadn't really, you know, I haven't heard this perspective before with what might be considered the second generation of ordained women in community of Christ. Because like you said, the first generation, a lot of them were already married. And this was something that, uh, you know, hopefully their spouses supported and they were already established. But when you want a long-term relationship with someone and you're in a culture that is deeply rooted in gender roles. I mean, the only thing that I can kind of relate to is when I left the LDS church, I was just grateful that I did it with my spouse because had I left as a single woman, it would have alienated me and disqualified me from having a relationship with a lot of guys around me, right? So to some degree, I totally get what you're saying, that it is easier to, to take these big steps on a faith journey when you're doing it with a partner, if having a partner is important to you, because if you take them by yourself, then you are completely setting yourself on a different 
path than other folks around you. So that's, that is fascinating. And I really appreciate that perspective because that's not one that I think we've really heard on the podcast before or in these stories. And it's, it's important because again, when you're considering a call to priesthood or when um, maybe you're, you're considering um, presenting a call to priesthood, those kinds of things are important to take into consideration and it is a lifelong commitment. And so I think that there was a good level of spiritual maturity within you to say, if I'm going to commit to this, then I'm, I need to know that community of Christ is where I'm going to live out my lifelong discipleship and not just jump into something because it's this opportunity that presented itself, right? Like you were really uh, intentional and thoughtful about it and wanted to make sure that this was a lifelong commitment for you. So I think that there's just, yeah, a lot of maturity, a lot of intentionality um, that honestly, we all need. <laughs> like it's, it's good. Like these, these are good qualities to have and thoughts, uh, a level of thoughtfulness to bring into a call to ordination. So again, thank you. It was really interesting. Yeah. And that, having had this experience, you know, I hope as, as I am one day, one of the elder folk um, helping younger people be called to this, to this tradition, that my story will help others, um, that they'll know that, you know, a calling can be true, but maybe just not at the right time, (laughs) that our 20s can be a very difficult time uh, to be wrangling with wanting a partner, but then also wanting to serve. And so sometimes those can be mutual and good. And sometimes they can be exclusionary toward each other. So um, I think it's something that we probably all need to involve in our conversations with, with how we nurture people kind of in their twenties and thirties and to realize where they may be at in their personal lives and not just in their spiritual lives. Absolutely. Really important things to consider that sometimes I don't know if they get as considered as deeply as they should. (laughs) (laughs) so let's just continue telling your story um so you met ken and i guess we kind of heard his story um from his perspective just a few weeks ago um but i'm curious to just hear it from you as well so you met ken he was a pastor in the nazarene um church he was a he was a pastor of a congregation uh and yeah just just keep telling your story (laughs) So Ken and I met in December 2019, uh, before the pandemic, but became Facebook friends after the initial meeting. Uh, friendship turned into commenting on each other's stuff. Uh, commenting in public turned into DMs. And so by the time the shutdown happened in March 2020, we had kind of started a conversation and I was interested. Uh, he expressed a view of progressive Christianity that I really had not heard outside of my own church and people my age, um, especially not in rural Alabama. And so I wasn't going to let this one go without without a little work. And so we had lots of great in-depth, just typing back and forth conversations, um, which a lot of millennials will associate with. It's how a lot of us learned how to type to begin with, <laughs> was typing back and forth in messenger chats. And so eventually, about a week after shutdown, 
Ken asked me if I would like to go on a picnic. And so we had our first little meeting, uh, a date that normally would have lasted about an hour turned into a three hour uh, date. And I knew something was happening (laughs) even on that first one. Our second date was six hours. The third one was eight. And six weeks later, we were engaged. Uh, It happened very quickly, but I was 32. You know, he was approaching 40 and we both felt that we had a lot of very important conversations very early on. And I knew that this was not something that was going to stop growing. It was only going to continue to flourish. And so we got married in December, 2020. And in the middle of all this, and I'm sure Ken shared this as a very pivotal moment of his story was the black lives matter movement um, happened in summer, 2020. And he and I, you know, discussed it at length about our personal thoughts, um, personal experiences that tied into that story having having grown up in rural Alabama and um, seen racism and both of us having tried to not participate in it, but ways that it had nonetheless um, shaped both of us growing up. And Ken had always had um, some African-American members of his congregation. And so he felt led uh, to attend the local rally here in town and he had a wonderful experience that day. Um, He was welcomed. He was asked to pray. (laughs) Um, You know, he, he came home feeling that he had truly engaged in Christian community and had, and had done the right thing. Um, Unfortunately, his congregation did not see it that way. They were very conservative. um, And it turns out quite racist. (laughs) Um, And, you know, meanwhile, I'm trying to kind of convert to this new denomination that I did have some hesitations having read some of their history. Um, Holiness wasn't really what I felt called to, but I felt connected to this man and felt that I could make a go of it. They at least allowed women in the priesthood um, and didn't seem to actively discourage anybody. (laughs) So that was something. Um but I never truly felt welcomed and particularly not after that moment. Um, So we were kind of on a, on a crisis path (laughs) leading into our wedding and he decided to leave the church at the same time that we got married. Um, So we embarked on this marriage we had to buy a house in like six weeks because we were planning on living in the parsonage and he was not going to be the parson anymore. (laughs) So that option was removed and, Thankfully, I had a lot of connections in this rural Alabama town and the market had not taken off the way that it later did. And so we were able to buy a house and kind of remove ourselves from that situation. And at first I told Ken that I would I would support him. I would go anywhere he wanted to go as long as women were allowed in the priesthood and they didn't actively discourage anybody from attending um, their church. Like there could be no outright hate toward any group. Um, I knew that full inclusion would be almost impossible in most areas, uh, most denominations in this area. And so that automatically by saying women have to be involved, limited the pool um, by about 75%. And 
So at first we thought, okay, well, maybe we will try to continue in the Nazarene tradition. You know, he had worked so hard on his credentials um, to be a minister. So we would drive to Bruton where his friend um, who had actually married us was the pastor. And so we went down there a few times, but it just never clicked. Um, We found ourselves preferring to stay home on Sunday. And keep in mind, this is in the middle of the pandemic. And so uh, my home congregation in Huxford back in Community of Christ was actually closed. Um, You know, they were being very cautious about things while other churches were reopening (laughs) and going in without masks. And it was just very scary. very scary time. And so, you know, we were trying to be very careful, trying to keep ourselves healthy. And we were trying to attend this church where mask participation was 50-50 at best. Um, And we, with us wearing masks, we didn't feel very welcome. And so again, we found ourselves kind of just staying home a lot. And we were going to give it one last shot. Um, We were going to attend another more local Nazarene church when I grew very ill. We were driving there (laughs) on a Sunday morning. I became very, very ill and told Ken we had to turn around and go back home. And later that day, we were, I was still rather sick, but I finally just turned to him and I said, what about my church? Um, because of our history, because of um, our restoration past, I at first did not feel like I could make that suggestion because I thought, oh, this Nazarene guy, like, I love him so much, but I can't ask him to take that on. Um, You know, he's already gone through this huge transition himself, having basically been kicked out of a congregation because he chose to go support other members of that congregation at a local rally. I can't ask him to take this on too in such a short amount of time. But he said, let's try it. And again, we were not actively meeting at the time, but we started listening to Project Zion. So, um, you know, this has been part of our story too, which is kind of surreal that I'm now talking here. Uh, But we started listening to Project Zion and I told him, I said, okay, well, if anybody can talk you into this, (laughs) it will be um, two of our evangelists in our area, Marsha and Gary Howard, who have been kind of my spiritual guide points my entire life. Um, They're just amazing people. Uh, Gary was on the board at Graceland the year that I was up there. And so they were even visiting me there and like, they're just amazing people. And I took him to see them. We sat with them for an entire afternoon. They answered questions that Ken had, um, you know, about the Book of Mormon, about, um, you know, the fact that you don't necessarily have to believe (laughs) in the veracity of it in order to be a member. Um, They talked about, you know, paths toward um, ministry in our church and just things that Ken needed answering that I knew some of the answers, but wanted to hear it from somebody actively involved in um, higher level priesthood in our church. And that was probably a really healing day for both of us um, to know that there was a path forward for us in that way. And so before we left, Ken said, all right, I want to be confirmed. Um, And a few weeks later, he was, um, was actually 
in the same place we got married because again, pandemic wedding, we had to get married outside. And so my dad built this huge cross um, in what I call my pine cathedral um, because it's just these huge pines that go this full length aisle. And that's where Ken was then confirmed. And I've told other people, I feel like Ken's confirmation was almost a reconfirming for me. Um, because I had kind of pushed away the church for so long, um, had not allowed myself to fully engage in community of Christ, even though I loved so much about it. I just never thought that I would get to stay here. Um, being in rural Alabama with everything that we have discussed about trying to be a woman that would maybe find a partner. I never thought that I would get to stay and what's more, find somebody that would join me in the church and join me in ministry. And his confirmation again was, I felt like the hands were being laid on my head. (laughs) Um, And I truly feel we hadn't, we of course not had, had not received our callings at that point, but that was the moment I felt that if I received another calling that I could accept it at that point. Um, that God had been working in my life and calling me to there and that I could follow (laughs) when called again. I love how this all turned out. I love (laughs) that you grew up thinking, you know, assuming that maybe you'd be a pastor's wife or you would be following your spouse to join his church. And then the opposite happened. (laughs) You were able to find somebody with shared values and a shared understanding of a God that looks out for those um, that society is pushed to the margins and that you were able to make this commitment together uh, in your church. And I just, I think that gosh, the, the leap of faith that Ken had to be able to, you know, walk away from that community that he had worked so hard to be part of and to lead, and then to trust you in your discipleship and in your community. And to see that, that same sense of shared values within community of Christ to just to be able to together take that leap. And like you said, it was kind of like a recommitment for you and that you were now able to say, okay, this is what we're doing together. I just love the way that that came about. I just, I absolutely love it. So thank you so much for sharing so much for sharing. (sighs) And so then that was in, sorry, we'll repeat when that happened. That was in 2021. So summer 2021. Okay. And then about a year later, you were both ordained elders. Is that yes. correct? Yes. Um, our our calling was presented to us in November 2021. And we probably flew through the required classes in record time. Um, part of that was because like so much of our relationship had been defined by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was determined that we would be ready to go with our ordination the next time that we felt that everybody could get together and celebrate in person. Ah. Um, and so, you know, as we're getting into the spring, you know, they're like, well, we maybe can't. I was like, we can. Somebody's going to offer this class. Somebody. <laughs> like, Somebody. We're ready to go. Somebody is going to make this happen. <laughs> I may have, I may have seemed a little pushy to a lot of people, um, but with good reason because having watched how kind of things wane and build and ebb and everything again, 
I just knew that we were going to have this gap in like May <laughs> um, when hopefully numbers would be down and we could have, you know, the people we wanted to ordain us be present and not fear for their health and that we could be inside in the church that I grew up in and not have to have one mother, one more thing outside. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, we, we sped through all of that, which for Ken, I mean, he had already had so much of that in his master's of religion at Treveca. And then for me, my background in religious history, and then having seen my mom on that journey and just being well-read, you know, it, it was a good time for us. We, we enjoyed going through the classes together, look forward to doing more. Um, but we were ready to serve <laughs> and get out there and get started. So um, there was no hesitation from either of our side when we received our callings to elder. It, it felt right and it felt timely and just perfect for us. I love that suddenly once you were on the same page and on the same trajectory forward, you were just like, okay, we're doing it right. <laughs> After two, you know, two lives filled with this question of faith and religion and ministry, and then to, yeah, be on the same page and to be able to say, okay, we're, we're diving into this head first, whether you're ready or not, somebody's going to be ready for us. Like, I just, I love your enthusiasm. That's super, super exciting. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I have been very, uh, very entertained and very, very much enjoyed it. So with these interviews, after we get your story out, I like to just ask a few questions about just your thoughts on church in general. So what, and this might seem, these might seem pretty basic, but I'm going to ask them anyways. <laughs> so from your perspective, what are the benefits of religious communities in today's world? I mean, a lot of people in our generation are just leaving religion altogether. So what what are the kind of things that keep you coming back? What are the, the benefits of a faith community from your perspective? Ultimately, for me, the thing that kept me coming back uh, was community. Um, it's in the name of the church, community of Christ. And I've heard other people say that community often brought them when Christ didn't. Um, and for me, community remains central as to why I think we make the argument for church. Um, because, you know, I, I can find spiritual moments out in the world. I can sit in the woods and feel in tune with God but I can't experience the sacraments alone. I can't take communion entirely alone. I can't be baptized alone. <laughs> um, and the grace that we all experience as a group when we experience the sacraments together is foundational to my definition of church now. Um, and it's an argument that I make to friends who ask me, why are you doing all this extra work to go into ministry? And, you know, it, aren't you worried that no one will show up one day? And well, absolutely. But I also do this for me and to share the gifts that I have been given and to help people find community, because I worry for our generation that so many of us don't have the communities of the past, you know, who, who's going to bring the casseroles <laughs> when people die. 
um, without community. And that's not just necessarily a church community, but community in general. If you've only gone to work and gone home and gone online and never built those connections, so much of your life is is not going to look like the past. And I, I feel I need people. I, I need community. Um, so again, that that's what brings me back to church and to continue to argue for church happening and being in person. Um, I feel like we can develop strong communities online. Brittany, we've never met in person, um, but we're developing a friendship and I, I love that. But we do still in our day-to-day lives need the ministry of presence. Um, we need to be together and we need community. Ah. Uh. The sociologist part of my heart is just beaming with joy because I absolutely agree. And, you know, I, I look at what's happening in our society and we're just getting so isolated and polarized and we're not, we've almost lost the ability to have conversations with one another, especially conversations with folks that maybe disagree with us or that we disagree with. And I do think that that is one of the most beautiful things about a faith community that can hold diversity is being able to be there for one another in, in ways that um, support one another, bring out that diversity and just really, we have a, a common goal and a shared interest of just making the world a better place. And I really, really, worry about the trajectory of how easily it is to isolate ourselves and just forget to love our neighbor. So thank you. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now this is going to be a fun question, but what do you think is the hardest thing about being a millennial in community of Christ? Or I guess, you know, just in broader Christianity. I think that there is a sense by the older generation of the church that they can call all of us young folks to ministry and then they can pretty much retire and go off into the sunset and expect us to save it all. That is something that I continue to struggle with. It was part of why I didn't accept the first call as well, um, because I was just not interested in doing the saving at that point, Um, especially not alone, but I digress. I worry that others with stories to tell and with ministry to share will feel pressured to save something that maybe isn't theirs to save, but will let that keep them from ministry. I know it almost did me. And so I worry for the voices that maybe will be silenced because we we need to have these conversations about how you can serve until the last day (laughs) and it'll be okay. Your service will be appreciated um, and that everybody will understand that you did your best to help save everything. And you know what, maybe if we all worked toward that, if we just worked on serving and not on saving, um, maybe we would start a new movement (laughs) instead of stressing so much about where this may end up. Let's focus on where we are and on um, being the church and the communities that's needed on being the progressive voices that are not present everywhere. Um, We've, we've kind of developed the saying in our own congregation about, you know, there's plenty of churches out there 
for everybody, but there aren't many churches like us for the people who don't feel welcome at those other churches. And I think if we focus on being that other (laughs) for the other, um, for welcoming LGBTQ, for welcoming single parents, for welcoming anybody who feels judged in other spaces into our fold. Um, I think if we focus on the now, we might yet have a future. (laughs) You gave so many good one-liners in, in that response. And I really, really appreciate it. I absolutely love the idea that focusing on where we are now and serving instead of saving, like, "Mm, that was a good line. And I really appreciate that perspective because sometimes it can be really overwhelming, uh, trying to figure out what the future of the church looks like, especially knowing that, uh, we are going to be the leadership of that future church, right? No matter what that looks like. And, I wish that I had a crystal ball, but I don't, and nobody does. And so as someone who is naturally on the more anxious side and has sometimes a difficult time connecting with the present because I'm so worried about the future, uh, I really appreciate that reminder. And um, just to look at what we're doing here and now and how we're living out our values here and now and making our communities better here and now. Love that answer. So thank you so much. Yeah. And I, we've already seen it at work in our own congregation prior to the pandemic an average Sunday morning, 10 was a huge crowd. It was more like five on average. Mm -hmm. Um, We were worried that we were on the trajectory to closing and now we can readily expect 18 to 20 on a Sunday morning. And we are, if there were a growth award (laughs) um, in the mission center, I think we would be a good candidate for it. But we stopped worrying about the future and we focused on how much we love being a community together Mm -hmm. and on coming together on Sundays once we were able to reopen and there was a rejuvenation of people feeling um, excited to come to church because we were not able to for so long. And realizing that we had all suffered loneliness during the pandemic, that we needed that community. And, you know, Ken and I just started having conversations with people in our town here and ended up finding this family who were church members, um, but had kind of disengaged from the church years ago. And they've been attending. So right there, it was four, (laughs) which almost doubled our numbers pre-pandemic. Um, so again, you know, focusing on what was in front of us and not worrying about what may happen in 15, 20 years has created new opportunities and paths to mission in our own little church. So it can happen. (laughs) It can happen. Again, I absolutely love that story. This is this podcast episode has just been filled with such great stories. (laughs) Thank you so much. So with that, I'm wondering, so, you know, we've talked about older generations passing off um, leadership responsibilities to us and maybe how that's kind of a bumpy road sometimes. So as you look towards, as you look towards the future, even though we were just talking about (laughs) staying grounded in the present, but how do you think we can best mentor and empower the youth today as they are stepping into leadership roles? And I mean, I would even extend that to our own peers. Um, how can we support one another as future leaders in the church? 
I think as we look toward the future and as we build new relationships and develop new leaders, I believe that we need to offer plenty of support to those new leaders that we don't just need to feel like, hey, you've received your calling, now go save it. <laughs> um, it we need more educational opportunities uh, for people. And I think that also needs to involve um, how to do outreach, how to have um, active and meaningful conversations with people. Um, I would love to see more marketing from World Church, um, particularly that we can then plug into like our local social media to help us get our voice out there, because I feel like that is a powerful tool as people are maybe exploring who we are, um, to not leave that to local areas to develop, but maybe to kind of have a little bit more <laughs> um, video content and just other things that we can share and really get the word out there. Um, and I love that we've kind of developed these opportunities to speak online, um, to connect people across areas when we maybe don't have opportunities in our own local area, but then to be able to join like a millennial meetup and um, hear from people, you know, all over the U.S. and indeed the world um, so that we can stay connected um, between world conferences <laughs> and we can learn and grow from each other. Um, I think those opportunities are vital and maybe even create more of those opportunities for youth, make them feel connected across the wider church. And that can be things that, you know, can be facilitated from a world church level um, that can then support local ministry because people feel uh, more well-educated about the church, um, more ready to talk about it with um, people who are not of our faith and just kind of develop, developing discipleship at a young age and giving people the tools to do that. I love all of that because I think that we really do have good content, values, scriptures, hymns, all the things like it's there. It's just figuring out a way to support one another in communicating our identity, message, mission, beliefs, right? So um, I appreciate that response because it's not that we have to reinvent the wheel. It's that we need to just support one another in sharing who we are. And that feels like a much more manageable ask than trying to come up with all this, these solutions and ways to redo everything and to think forward into the future. But it's like, wait a second, we already have good stuff. We just need to support one another in delivering that message to the world. So thank you. I really appreciate that. So with that, uh, my last question is simply, what are your hopes for Community of Christ? And then I guess I always end these conversations with just, is there anything else you'd like to say? So um, is there anything else that I wasn't able, that you weren't able to get out because I didn't ask it, et cetera? So hopes and then any final thoughts? I guess my greatest hope is that as we hopefully continue to move out of the pandemic, that we will live up to our name as community of Christ, that we will reintroduce not only our own people, but new groups of people to this concept of loving community, um, worshiping a loving God, 
that we will continue to be this other option for people who haven't felt like they were welcome anywhere else. I think that that is so perfect and exactly what I see as the mission of the restoration, right? Like we want to restore people and relationships and bring reconciliation and healing into places that might be surprising and to focus on our inclusion and um, the way that our perception of Jesus, et cetera, is different and offers uh, a new hope and a new path forward. So Thank you so much, Alicia. This has been such a good conversation and I really appreciate hearing your side of the story since we just heard Ken's. Um, And again, I just, there's so many just God moments that I heard throughout your story and really appreciate uh, your perspective and your hope and just the, the mission and ministry that you are bringing to your local area and the broader church. So thank you so much. Thank you thanks for listening to project zion podcast subscribe to our podcast on apple podcast stitcher or whatever podcast streaming service you use and while you are there give us a five-star rating project zion podcast is sponsored by latter-day seeker ministries of community of christ The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. 